0: Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you're tuning in. I met today's guest at the Sanibel Island Writers' Conference last fall. I had shared something during a workshop about my health, and he came up to me afterwards to share his story and give me a copy of his book, Super Clara, which he wrote for his granddaughter who had brain cancer. Bob Martin is an advocate for children and has an amazing story to share. So welcome, Bob.
1: Well, thank you very much, Harper. Delighted to be here.
0: So happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do.
1: Sure. I spend half my time in Connecticut and half my time in Florida following the sun. I happen to be in New York today for the first day of winter and the holidays. Essentially what I do now, my mission is, and it has been for about 15, 20 years, is to inspire children to chase their dreams and to help those who can't. And quite frankly, most of my focus is on those who can't, children that have chronic disease or a psychological disorder.
0: And how did you get into that?
1: So it all started, uh, particularly the the helping children that have lost the will to chase their dreams, approximately three years ago. Maybe it's two and a half years ago now. Uh, Sadly, my granddaughter, who was then uh, four, was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which is a brain tumor, and uh, highly terminal. And we did everything we could as a family. Um, We searched the world for solutions and learned an awful lot on this journey, but didn't learn enough to come up with a cure or a treatment that would sustain her life. And, and sadly, she passed in October of last year.
0: So sad to hear that, and sorry you had to deal with that. I'm sure it's still very fresh in your mind. How did you cope with that situation?
1: Well, in most families, if uh, in the first thing you do is you, is you read about how this affects a family and how can you support your own daughter uh, and her husband and how they're dealing with it and their other daughter. And then it expands into cousins and nephews and aunts. So you begin to understand that this is a struggle and there's no solution to it. It's coming to terms with these things happen in life. And unfortunately we were inflicted with it. We've had a lot of great things happen to us in life. Uh, but this is one of those that was heartbreaking. As a family, we we were a very close family anyway. I raised my children outside the United States, living in developing countries, helping kids in those countries. And that's just the nature of living in those places. You rely a lot on each other. So many families, when, when they're faced with this, they don't have that bond to make it through the journey. And it often destroys a family. For us... It brought us even closer. None of us tried to say the, the things that were not realistic. We tried to be frank when we could, but always with a level of optimism, but not so much so that it was clearly uh, empty words. Yeah.
0: So you said you've been doing this kind of work for 15 years. Mm-hmm. What did it look like before your granddaughter?
1: So I belong to a board in Florida that deals with children at risk. So my most of my time then was focused on raising money for those children, understanding what those children are going through, how invisible those children are that have been abused it's not something they're willing to talk about or share. It's something that they hide, but it affects who they are. Uh, visibly, you can see that they've been scarred, but you know, one child looking at that child might just say he's, you know, he's just a, a bad apple or uh, he has a chip on his shoulder. But until children understand what's behind that behavior, the scars, the deep scars that that child has felt, and how he's struggling to deal with it. That's only when a friend can be supportive and understand and see what's behind that child's eyes.
0: And so what is the work that you did with those children? How did you support them?
1: Essentially uh, raising money and then going over uh, and speaking. Um, That that was really essentially uh, pretty much the same thing.
0: And the work that you were doing overseas, what was that?
1: Well, uh, it started a little bit in West Africa uh, in, in, the, in the 70s, but that was just going to villages. I worked for a, a company that was in the toothpaste business. So we'd go in and teach oral care to children and, and provide products to children who didn't have the wherewithal to buy that. In Central America, in Panama, uh, in the days of Noriega, there's an area of Panama called San Miguelito. And it's where Noriega's thugs lived. And the abuse of those children. One example one father cut off his son's leg because he could bake and make more money with it. It wasn't uncommon for their daughters to become pregnant with, by them. So I worked with a Catholic church that was there called Fatima, and we brought a group together and we started to impose ourselves on these families. And get these children out of the out of those situations. Uh, so that was probably the most hands on, my first taste of being hands on and 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 helping those children.
0: That's incredible! Wow, yeah. love that you did that. So it seems like the common thread amongst your life, with or without grandchildren, was always kids and supporting and advocating for kids.
1: Yeah, and 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 part of that, um, I have a grandson that has ADHD. And I re- never really understood why I was not a good student as a child. I was, you know, always a, a D student. Uh, I celebrated Cs, and uh, the only reason I made it through college was that, which I'll come back to, was that my my father had passed away, and I realized that I was as great as disappointment. But I learned through my grandson that hey, I, ha- I had ADHD. That's why I didn't do so well. So I wasn't understood as a child. I didn't even understand who I was. I just knew that I had all these dreams and I was always chasing dreams, but I would fail every time. You know, I wanted to be president of the class. I, want, you know, I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to get A's, but I didn't have the capability of doing that because of ADHD. I didn't know what it was, didn't know I had it. And certainly the teacher didn't in those days, or nor did my friends. They just thought I was the slow kid in the class.
0: So how did you determine that from your grandson? Was there like a defining moment where you saw him do something a certain way and go, oh, my God, that's me?
1: Yes, exactly. That's exactly what happened. Um, he started to demonstrate this a certain behavior. And At what age? Probably started when he was about four. Okay. Yeah. It was actually probably started before that, but I didn't really begin. None of us really began to un- fully understand it until he was four. And then we started to read and, and learn more. And even origi- even initially, I didn't I didn't consider that I had ADHD. I was never thinking about myself. Um, but the more I researched it, and the more I wrote about it, I said, "Well, wait a minute. <laughs> now I understand why I struggled through school." And uh, so, un- understanding what it's like to be a child and and have a disorder of some kind, even if you don't know you have it, is you don't you don't want children to ever go through that ever. It's t- it's just horrible. Oh.
0: How old is he now? Eight. And have you had that conversation with him of realizing that you had what he had?
1: No. Has? No, nope, have not.
0: Something you're considering? Uh,
1: yes. When, they're, when uh, his mom and dad say, that's a good idea, let's do it. But right now they're thinking about it.
0: Got it. Makes sense. <laughs> so you mentioned writing about it. Yeah. When and why did you start writing about it?
1: I have a ser- I have three books, which I brought with me today. Uh, the first book I wrote with my one granddaughter, who's now 11, and that came by surprise. Uh, I was actually working on a memoir, and she's an early riser like I am at five, and during the summer she would come up and visit. So she was about seven or eight then, and we're down at the beach, waiting for the sun to come up, and I say, hey, let's have some fun and write a story together, because she like- she likes to do stories and I was struck about how talented she was and the keen insight and sensitivity she had to other children. So I said, well, let's let's write a book. So the objective of the book was to write a mystery that kids would love a page turn, would it, love it, reading it, but at the same time address some of the socialization issues, whether that be, you know, it could be bullying, it could be, you know, Why does everybody want to be like the the top kid in the class? The things that kids think about that they don't feel comfortable talking to their parents about. Because parents' responses is normally, oh, you'll get over it. Don't worry about it, right? Uh, But these books go further than that. And they each take place in a different country so that they learn a new culture as well. And I use the word learn very uh, carefully because it's not meant to lecture at all. We kind of slip it in there without them knowing it. And by the end of the book, they understand that. And there's a for each book, there's a, uh, a teaching guide. The second book was dedicated in honor of my granddaughter, Clara. It's called Super Clara, A Young Girl's Journey of Cancer, Courage, and Bravery. And um, again, it's a light book. It explains cancer in a way that children will understand it, not meant to scare, but certainly to make it very clear that this is a serious disease And if you're a friend of someone that has this, you can be of help, but you need to understand it. So that book is intended to help other children understand what that child's going through, but also for children that have a serious disease to give them the courage for the battle ahead. And and the book really shows how Clara had the courage throughout her journey. Then the last, the most recent series um, is called The Amazing Ninja Brothers. Uh, kids love still love ninjas. And it's two brothers whose grandfather, great-great grandfather, leave them a magic ring. He was an adventurer, he was in Asia, and he came across these two ninja rings that give superpower. And essentially the power gives one of the children, it's just two brothers, one brother the power of understanding, and the other brother the power of empathy. So in the first book deals with ADHD. And once again, the intent is to not only help a child that has a disorder understand that, hey, this is not a psychological disorder. My brain just works differently. And there's some good parts of that. And there's some things I need to manage on my own. Right. But also, importantly, is to help the other children in the class understand that, hey, my buddy, he's got this thing. His mind works differently. He can do some amazing things. But he also needs some help in some other areas. And I'm going to help him.
0: I love that. And I love that you did. So two of them are with your granddaughter? Yes. And I think the the really cool thing here is the relationship with parents and children is one thing. And those can be really different. But I think that there's a standard sort of grandparent role that's very different. That's a grandparent and a child. That's a really unique, special relationship. So what made you do these with her? And what is her role in the process?
1: Right. So... Again, it's, um, you know, you're always looking for a way to create a bond with your grandchildren. I mean, you try to be a trusted friend, uh, non-judgmental. You know, there's a role for grandparents to play, and and it's, and it's important we understand what that role is. We're not there to lecture, uh, but we're there to, if they go off the path, you know, help them get back on the path. So I wanted to build a relationship with each of my grandchildren, and when writing became the way for me to do that, and I saw how gifted she was. If that was an easy decision to make.
0: I love that. Yeah. And so where does your memoir fit into the picture here?
1: It's on the back burner. Okay. I'm too busy doing this stuff for kids first. Have
0: you written parts of it?
1: I have about 350 pages. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so it's something you do still want to do? Oh, yes. Just not a priority right now?
1: Yeah, and it may be just for my family. Uh, but I, I have to say that I'm a better person as I write my memoir. There's pieces that I learn about that I will not include, which helps me become a better person. Uh, And and they say you're supposed to leave those in. There's no way in hell I'm going to leave that stuff in. Um, But it's really good.
0: I love that. So how has your role as a grandparent, as a grandfather, changed or stayed the same since becoming a children's book author and writing these stories, some of which are dedicated to your grandchildren?
1: Yeah. I don't think it's changed my role really very much. And again, each child is different. So how they view me and how I have to accommodate what they need from me is different. So uh, for my youngest grandson, for him, it's all about playing, right? And we have some things that are very unique Uh, that we do. I also have a nickname, and I encourage all grandparents to to do this. I have a nickname for each of my grandchildren. And it sticks with them, and they love it. It makes them feel a little bit special that they have a nickname. So I would encourage that.
0: And are you the only person that calls them that?
1: No, everybody does now. Like Clara, our our, our granddaughter that uh, had passed away, uh, I called her Cupcake. And everybody called her Cupcake. So every year when we celebrate her birthday, or her passing. We have a big cupcake uh, that we do. And she went to school in Brooklyn. And everyone in the school was very fond of her. They, they, they were with her the whole way on her journey. In fact, they do a nutcracker every year. And they dedicated it to her. I have a, a foundation called Bridge to the Cure. And they, gen- they d- donated the funds from that to Bridge to a Cure. Some of the local artists heard about Clara and that the school was building a garden dedicated to her. They wanted to paint murals behind the garden because she loved you know, cupcakes and rainbows and butterflies. Then other artists from around the world heard about it, and the entire school now is a mural.
0: Um, wow.
1: Yeah, that's really cool.
0: That's so special. And so how do you keep her memory alive?
1: You know, it's funny the different ways you do it. Obviously, we have pictures everywhere. Um, I make sure that you know, you have light switches maybe for the same light on two different sides. I always make sure they're both down or both up because that's the way – because if they're not, oh, Clara would like me to make sure those are both down or both up. And when it's, and I laugh every time I do it. Um,
0: it's those it, little
1: things. Yeah. I think about her a whole lot and always for good reasons. And whether I'm happy or sad, she either increases my level of happiness it gets me back on track if I'm feeling sorry for myself,
0: right? Know. Which I'm sure she doesn't want you to be doing. No. no. So you mentioned the Bridge to a Cure Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what you do?
1: Yes. So the the, the journey with with Clara uh, and it's actually very similar with with my grandson with ADHD. I traveled everywhere to find a uh, first to find a cure, and I and I quickly learned that there really wasn't a cure for this. Then I said, okay, maybe we can find a treatment that will sustain her life until there's a cure because a lot was going on with immunotherapy and gene sequencing. There was progress being made. I learned that there wasn't any one research center doing anything for a cure, I mean, for a treatment. They were only focused on cures. And the reason being is that well let me back up they said their their argument was that well when we do look for a cure often we don't find a cure but we find a way to sustain the life. And I said that's true but think about it this way and I'm sorry to use a sports analogy but if you're managing a baseball team and you put up a baseball player and say all I want you to do is hit a home run which is the cure he's going to only swing at certain pitches and he's going to swing like hell that's all he wants to do versus all I want you to do is get on base any way you can. And that's what the treatment is. So when I put it that way, they they all acknowledged that that made sense. But then the hard part was communicated that we rely on the pharmaceutical industry. And then it interested in that. All they want is secure. So, you know, I, I get it. I come out of the corporate world. I, I know that they're bottom line driven, um, but they should be working on on that. So that's got me to there. Then my grandson had ADHD, and I said, well, wait a minute, this isn't only about chronic diseases, it's also about disorders that children have. So that's when I I expanded the, the foundation, and the objective of the foundation is five things that we don't do, and I'm not gonna go into the five, but the most important one is, we don't have a robust national database for any pediatric disease or disorder. So if you're a researcher, you're basically relying on what's what's available out there and what you have in the research center where you work. You don't have a database that has everything we know about the disease, every patient that's ever had the disease, and every possible pharmaceutical or alternative medicine, whether that be vitamin therapy, ketogenic diet, um, it's not there. So that's the first goal of this foundation is, is to raise the money uh, to build that database.
0: And so- how can people support something like that?
1: The website is www.bridgetoacure.org, and there's ways that you can support that. I'm in conversations uh, with a number of large institutions. My objective is to get them interested and take it over. I'm a grandfather. Uh, you know, I, I realize that this is a goal bigger than I am, but it's certainly a worthwhile goal, and I'm an advocate at this point in time looking for an institution say, yes, I'm going to take this over.
0: And are people interested in it? I mean, what kind of response are you getting to this outreach?
1: So I've met with the, the new director of, uh, of the National Cancer Center, uh, very supportive. The number two person at IBM, very supportive. I've met with 120 practitioners around the world. They're all supportive. I've laid out a framework for that database and what it would look like. And everybody agrees and it's supportive. So I'm now in a conversation with someone at Duke University and an institution called the Research America Institution, and they're trying to determine whether or not they want to take this over and to motivate it.
0: I mean, it's something worth exploring to just see if there's some sort of collaboration to be done, but it seems like what you're looking to do is obviously a huge undertaking, not something you can do independently, but- I think it's valuable for people to know how they can support and maybe get on board to, you know, make this actually come to life. So going back to your books a bit, this has become sort of your life's purpose, life's mission at this point in your life. Right. And so what else is on the horizon? You mentioned when you came in here to the studio that you're working on a new book. What is that?
1: Right. So there's, there's two books coming out, first quarter and second quarter of next year. The first book is the second book in the Ninja Brothers series that deals with, I'll call it bullying for now, uh, but it, it is a disorder and it needs to be understood. So that's, and then from the Cure and Papa Detective Agency, uh, the first book took place in London. Uh, the second book takes place in Panama. They, they all take places in countries I've lived and know well. And that should be coming out in the second quarter.
0: Yeah. And more to come?
1: Oh, yeah. There's five books in each of those series. Love that. So, and then maybe I'll get back to a memoir one of these days.
0: And do your other grandchildren have an interest in doing this with you? Or is this all Kira? All
1: well, Kira. Uh, well, actually, Kira fired me this summer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Tell me more. Yeah.
1: She said, Papa. And it was, it was, oh, she was so cute. It was hard for her to do. She wants to do her, her own. And she's writing her own. Um so I said, she is she's she's very creative and, and, and very talented and very sensitive to kids, and she's a great musician. plays plays classical guitar, writes her own music, and now writes her own is writing her own books. So,
0: quite the creative. Yeah,
1: yeah. But she is helping me with the second the, anything out of the Cure and Papa Detective Agency series. She's in. Essentially, what I'll do is uh, we do the storyline together, then I write it, and then she takes it and says, okay, Papa, you know, we have to make this right for kids. So let's, let me, let me, let me take a pen to it. <laughs> make it a
0: little more kidified. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so do you have any specific advice to other grandparents who have grandchildren that may have other invisible illnesses, whether it's mental, physical, chronic, etc.?
1: Sure. You know, interesting enough, there are 73 million children in the United States there are roughly 70 million grandparents in the United States. And the stress that parents are under today is beyond anything we've ever seen, as well as the number of single parents that there are. So there's a need for grandparents to roll up their sleeves and play a, a bit of a more active role uh, in their grandchildren's lives. That doesn't come automatically. It takes a while to build that credibility up with the grandchildren. And then often, I don't, I don't want to say often, but there's also the challenge of, of parents wanting you to play a certain role. They may not want you to play that role. So there's a bit of dancing and there's a bit of balance uh, in doing that. Even if I don't live in this, I spend half the year in Florida, but there's stay, there's ways to stay in contact, whether that be phone or FaceTime or Skype. There's plenty of ways uh, to do that. You know, nicknames, as I said, is a, is a good way to do that. And then try to differentiate yourself in some ways. I still... Ran a marathon last year. I can still do a flip off a diving board. So my grandkids kind of—I mean, I don't know why—but they think that is just brilliant that I that I can do that. So you 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 have to find out how you're going to connect with them. But what what is it going to say? Hey, you know, Papa's not just an old guy. I mean, he's kind of neat. So and there's so much to do and and so much fun to have. And it doesn't have to be your own grandchildren. I mean, you know, look around. There's a lot of kids out there that could use. Someone, a baby boomer, someone that grew up in the '60s, that understood what what's worth fighting for and how to change the world, uh, apply that same passion to the kids today.
0: Love that. And so, have you found that you're inspiring other grandparents to maybe embrace their grandchildren in different ways?
1: We'll see. Uh, You know, they also, of course, people say they do. I've started out doing speaking engagements uh, with. Among in Florida, there are a lot of senior <laughs> communities. It's easy to get them engaged in that conversation. There's a, certainly a lot of interest. Hopefully, they maintain that interest when they leave from that from that workshop. But we'll see.
0: And who would you say these books are for? Are they for the people who are going through the health condition? Are they people who have family members or friends? or is it for all kids?
1: yeah, it's it's really for all the kids and and it's and it's for the parents. You know, we're in a world that's desperate for kindness, and, you know, these books deal with kindness. So that's a term we have to use more and more and not dismiss it. Talk about kindness, what it means to be kind. And that's a great role for grandparents. I mean, we've got a a lifelong experiences of observing kindness and, and seeing the other side. And you can explain it with perhaps some examples and with some own experiences that has credibility for the children.
0: I love that. And I love that you've decided to make this your mission and put your memoir on hold, although I would love to read your memoir. Um, so how can people learn more about you and get copies of your book?
1: Sure. Thank you for that. Um, go to uh, my website is robertmartinauthor.com. The books are on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I mean, you can go to a number of places, but Prefer that you go to Amazon because the more people from, buy from Amazon, the higher my ranking. And reviews are, are mostly are really appreciated.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Bob.
1: Thank you very much, Harper.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit MadeVisiblePodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.